Hello out there, bibliophiles, and welcome to another edition of Drew Archives in 10. I'm Andrew Salvati, adjunct professor of media and communications here at Drew University. And joining me via Zoom is Dr. Brian Shetler, head of special collections at Drew University Archives. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing great. How are things with you? Good, good. Doing well, despite all the uh, quarantine and pandemic out there. We're doing, doing right well, thanks. Indeed. So what do you have for us today? So today I thought I'd go a little bit away from sort of the traditional items that are usually in an archive or a library, rare book library. Okay. We're going to look at some things that are maybe new to our listeners or maybe uh, completely unknown, which is what we're aiming for, trying to educate the audience. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about two specific items that are referred to as bark books, okay. which may sound sort of strange, uh, but the reason that they're called bark books, very uh, easily to understand, is they're made out of bark. So these are both items that were made in the Sumatran Islands, so essentially part of Indonesia. Mm -hmm. and they are uh, literally made out of the bark of trees, and they are both manuscripts, so they are written on uh, in the form uh, of these accordion-style books that we'll be talking about. Okay. The bark books themselves, forgetting the content for a minute, are, are really interesting because they look very different from books that, that we are used to seeing sort of from a Western perspective. Um, they're not like a, a simple book that you open up and you just flip from one page to the next. Because they're made of bark and they're not um, super flexible, they're, they're built together in sort of, like I said, an accordion style. So as an example, uh, the one I have in front of me now, um, it, it only has about a dozen or so leaves or pages as we might think of them but they're strung together at different ends each so that it creates oh, a wow. fan-like accordion shape imagine if you will you took a, a napkin and folded it over and over on itself to create right. a fan that's essentially the style or the the uh system that's set up here uh, in the depiction of these bark books. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like um, if you had a wallet with one of those plastic, the, the plastic folders that you put pictures in and it kind of like all, all spills out. Yes, that's actually, that's a great comparison, especially because that will give you an idea of how these are sort of compactly put together. Yeah. Uh, when you open them up all the way, this, this bark book is probably about two feet long. Um, we can't open this one fully because it is rather fragile and it may it may break. Uh, but if you were to sort of stretch it out as far as possible, it's about two feet worth of bark from a single tree. Oh wow! Uh, and the bark is essentially treated so that it can be folded at certain points. Um, if you were to try to fold a piece of bark yourself at home, it would crack. Right? <laughs> it's not really meant to be folded. But if you treat it, you soften the wood a little bit, and you can actually make it so it's bendable. Um, if you try to pull it apart fully, uh, it may still crack, which is why we're not going to do that for this particular uh, Yeah. But it just shows you the, the style of how these things are built. What's particularly interesting about this copy uh, that I have in my hands right now is this was actually given to a Methodist minister who um, served as a missionary in the Sumatran Islands. And is, they met up with a, uh, a group of people in the, in the islands that are known as the Batak tribe. And the Batak people believed uh, in essentially um, what we would think of as sort of pagan gods. Um, okay. they, they studied or they believed in the use of witch doctors. So the Methodists who went there in the 19th century to try to convert these people to Christianity, they actually uh, came to agreements of sorts with leaders of these Batak tribes uh, in order to sort of share with the people there 
biblical passages to convert them to Christianity. You know, there's a lot of sort of colonial overreaching, if you will, involved yeah. in this. But the result of that is, in some cases, that people did convert from their, what we think of as a pagan religion, to a Christian religion. This is an example of how someone sort of gave up their old life, their old faith, for their new one. Uh, so there's a small note that's attached to this, this copy, this Bark book. Uh, and the note says that the Bark book itself was presented to a Methodist preacher in the Sumatran Islands. And it was uh, believed to be that the Bark book itself held magical sayings and treatments that were prescribed by a Batak witch doctor. Um, they refer to him as a witch doctor and cannibal because some of those ceremonial um, treatments involved the eating of human flesh. So the person who received this, the Methodist missionary, sort of wrote down a history of what this item was. And essentially the story is that they, the, the witch doctor gave up their book, their faith book, in order to get a copy of the Bible. So essentially trading one faith for another as they were converted to Christianity. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Like the, the very practice or act of giving a gift, so to speak, uh, marks a moment of, of transition. Exactly. Yes. And in fact, it's sort of a, um, a ceremonial uh, status of giving up your old life for the new, which has, again, sort of has problematic colonial overtones. Sure. Um, and, and what I would what I would argue is that this is, it's interesting because the missionary field, this is their job, right? People who go into the missionary field are there to convert. And so they took possession of this text almost as a, a souvenir, if you will, of their success. And, and then eventually the family of the man who received it donated it to, here to Drew University uh, in the 1950s. I, I, I was just wondering if, you know, that for, for missionaries, if you know having more of these signifying each one signifying a conversion uh, meant that one had a bit more status as a missionary as someone who could successfully uh, get the Batak people or other islanders to uh, to convert yes and I, I, in fact that's why a lot of missionaries would collect again I'm calling them souvenirs may not be mm. the exact right word but they would collect sort of tokens from the places they went as a a signifier of the success that they had and the um, interactions that they had. So there's quite a lot of material here in the archives, especially on the Methodist archive side, from missionaries who went abroad, uh, left the U.S. or left England, came back and brought with them sort of these um, tokens of their trips, which a lot of this, you know, again, we get into issues of colonialism and whether or not these items really belong here or should, should they be returned back to right. the tribe that created them. Um, those are issues that a lot of archivists and librarians struggle with and, and trying to figure out where things properly belong. So do we know how long the Batak people were making these? That is a, that's a great question. So there's not a ton of information about the history of these particular objects. And I'll, um, as I'm talking about this, I'll, I'll share the second one. This is a second copy of another Batak book, which uh, in this case did not come from a Methodist missionary. This came uh, through a purchase that we here at Drew made a few years ago. But the history of this, it's it's probably late 19th or early 20th century, but there are not, there's not been a lot of sort of historical research done when these came into vogue, so to speak, or when they started being used within that um, the Sumatran Islands. It is a very old technique in terms of the creation of bark books, but specifically for use by 
for divination or healing or, or medical treatment, that sort of thing, that's a little less clear. Um, but this is a, a tradition of bookmaking that goes back farther than our own uh, historical record in terms of like the printed book in the 1500s. Okay. Um, so it's been, the style of itself has been around for quite a while. These two particular examples are from late 19th and early 20th century, um, but the tradition and the usage of bark as a medium uh, has been around far longer than that. Okay, and this one looks like it has a little bit more craft to it than than the previous example in that it has some carvings of what look to be chameleons or, or lizards. That's exactly right, yes. We, we, call them our, we call this our lizard book because ah. the four little lizards that are carved on the front, and you're exactly right, it has a, a lot more artistry. In fact, it has what we think of as a formal cover. So the top uh, and the back, or the front and the back, are both very thick pieces of wood I see, that are yes. glued onto the bark book itself. Um, so they they make for a much sturdier, more physically commanding presence than does the other bark book, which is just bark and doesn't really have any sort of significant coverage on it. Within this one, also you find illustrations, which we do not have in the in the other example. Um, so we have the text itself, but we also have small illustrations that are uh, decorating this along with the text and on the back cover as well, carvings, just like we saw with the lizard, all of which signifies that this book was probably taken more, uh, taken care of more nicely than uh, than the first one that we were okay. looking uh, And it would also, because it's a slightly later, probably early 20th century, uh, might mean that the sort of the advancement in, in skill and artistry is more represented here in this particular copy than in the other one. Okay. Now, now, the markings on the inside, are they carved in or is that a, a type of ink? For both of them, it's a type of ink. In fact, we have uh, an example here of a, of a wonderful illustration of a man who's performing a ritual with snakes. So it's uh, um, I see. Yeah. sort of divination, but with, but with snakes. Uh, and the text and the images are all hand-drawn onto the bark. And what you'll, what you'll see with both of these texts is that the... Um, the writing is very dark because they're using a really dark ink and they try to lighten the background of the actual bark in order to have that ink show off more clearly. Oh, okay. Um, so they'll actually, they'll treat the bark itself, not only to make it more foldable, but lighten it so it's so you can apply uh, an ink to it that's more readable. More Any readable. sense of uh, how long it would take to properly treat this bark to produce one of these books? That is a great question. I, I'm not sure in terms of production, mm -hmm. but I do know that it, uh, you have to have soak, you have to soak the bark for quite a while, um, three or four days at least to make oh, it okay. soluble enough, uh, and then let it dry a little bit before you can start bending, and then continue the drying process till it's dry enough to be written on, uh, and then you're in the point of the actual manuscript time. So it can it can take quite a while to do. It's not something you sure strip a piece of bark off and then the next day sort of start writing. So it does take some care and some, some extra time for sure. Um, the other part of these, both of these books that, that's interesting is because they are written on bark, they wanna use as much of this text space as possible. So even though you're going to be, if you're treating it like a, what we would think of as a regular Western text, you're gonna flip from left to right and you're only gonna see uh, a few pages but they don't want to waste all that space on the back of the bark. So actually, if you turn it over and start reading from the other direction, essentially, oh, wow. you'll see there's more text on, on what we think of as sort of the back of the page. So you're reading this, this text, both of these bark books, sort of in, in two directions, if you will. 
So you're not wasting any of that space for uh, where written text can go, which again is a different sort of mechanics of reading than we are used to with our with our traditional codex form. Oh, what fascinating pieces, Brian. And maybe if our listeners haven't seen one of these before, they will uh, maybe make a appointment and, and come see them for, for themselves when, uh, when the situation improves and, and such things are possible. That would be great. And in the meantime, we'll be posting some photographs of these online along with the episode so you can see just what these look like, uh, at least from a distance. Wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing these, Brian. Thank you. That's our show. If you want to see images of the items we've highlighted today, head on over to Drew University Participatory Archives at www.drew.edu forward slash library forward slash special hyphen collections. You can follow the Drew Special Collections and University Archives on social media, on Facebook at Drew U Special Collections, on Twitter at Drew U Archives, and on Instagram at Drew Archives. For myself, Dr. Andrew Salvati, and for Dr. Brian Shetler, take care, stay safe, and see you next time on Drew Archives in 10.